Hello and welcome to Something in Media, a show that tells the story of successful people in the general world of media and what it takes to make it to the very top. I'm Dave Maguire. We plan to show you that there are many ways to become successful in the media, whatever your background and wherever you're from. And in this episode, we welcome presenter Michelle Ackerley as we talk to her about her journey growing up in the northwest of England to fronting some of the nation's most loved television and radio programmes. And I remember thinking at the time, I've got four weeks here, a week just went like that two days of travelling come back doing some tapes didn't see anybody and I kept well I saw people like walking along the corridor and they had these like you know BBC passes and I thought oh, there's stuff there's stuff I've got this little paper thing I want one of them and I thought right I've got three weeks to go this essentially for me it's like a three week interview as you'll hear Michelle is one determined person and from an early age Michelle didn't have the easiest of rides fighting off some major insecurities and also some unsettled family life but she knew what she wanted to do and achieved her ambitions to eventually flourish in front of the camera and become one of the UK's best-known and loved TV presenters. Today, Michelle is a well-known star, both in television and on radio, and in this episode you'll hear that that's all down to her hard work, perseverance and also shining personality. But naturally, she had to start somewhere, and for Michelle, that was in Manchester. Yeah, I was born in Manchester, grew up as a kid in Manchester... I actually grew up opposite Main Road, which was the old Manchester City Stadium. So kind of hard not to be a Manchester City supporter when you've got everybody else kind of walking past your house, cheering and chanting. <laughs> um, so yeah, I grew up in Manchester and then uh, moved over to South Manchester, Cheshire um, when I was a, a teenager. And uh, what was that change like? Because I, I lived in Manchester briefly, but w- uh, from what I know from the North West, Main Road was quite inner city gritty can mm. we say and then mm. Cheshire is typically quite leafy and suburby is that yeah, right? Yeah completely different I th- it's it's funny because when people ask me where I'm from I always say Manchester even though kind of half my childhood was Manchester and half of it was Cheshire but I think once you've kind of had those early formative years of your life within that environment you really do associate yourself as a Mancunian you know and I've lived around various different cities with my career over the years and even when I've lived in London I still feel northern I still feel like I come from the northwest and growing up as a a youngster in Manchester it formed my identity a very strong sense of identity Mancunians are very proud they're very loyal very, very proud of their football teams, whether you're United or City, mm-hmm. and stick up for each other. Do you know what I mean? So kind of, even when I moved over to Cheshire, those roots of Manchester have always been there. And my mum was born and bred in Manchester. You know, she's she's got her Mancunian accent going strong. So there was definitely a difference moving over to Cheshire. I think for me, diversity probably was was a key difference it to be, to be fair even when i was growing up in the very late 80s early 90s in manchester there weren't that many black people around there were we had our own communities but racism was was rife moving over to cheshire i was the only you know mixed race person in my school so i think for me when i moved over that side i started having a few more questions about my identity or recognizing me as a person a bit more because other people were seeing me as different if that makes sense yeah it absolutely does and am I right in thinking that you you moved over about nine or ten to Cheshire because that's quite a, a formative period of your life isn't it it's just before you go to quote-unquote big school exactly 
It was it was a family move. I mean, I was a kid. It, it was it was beyond my control, really. My our family was growing. My brother had just been born, and my parents wanted to have a life in the countryside. I guess you know a bit more space. And so yes, we embarked on the move. But you, you're totally right in terms of those are the the formative years. And I remember passing an entrance exam to go to a school in Cheshire and going for a, a chat with um, the headmistress at the time, who's, who's left, it was many years ago now, and um, I always had my hair in braids, I've got afro hair and there's various different things you can do with black hair, I had it in, um, in braids and in my interview, kind of like I'd passed the exam, but it was the interview to go into the school. She said, you know, we think you're a fantastic pupil. You did really well on the exams. However, you will have to take your hair out of braids, Michelle. Remember them thinking, wow, like what, you know, as a young kid, it's almost like now as an adult, I really wish I could like catapult myself back to that time and come up with all these things that I could have said to her. But at the time, I just remember thinking that sense of not feeling like I belong I clearly look different and as a kid so you're not really thinking of it that much you might do when you're watching certain things on television and you realize people don't necessarily look like you but when someone's saying it directly to your face as in this is a stipulation of our school that was definitely a, a point for me within my you know childhood that I started to feel yeah very different and, and self-reflect a bit more and at an age where insecurity is part and parcel of growing up that just must have added to the to the to the load at that age it, it definitely did and I kind of feel like there was almost kind of two sides to me because I was on the one hand I was really outgoing loved drama and on on the other hand my actual self of sense that it I was kind of breeding more and more insecurities and anxieties and then you go through puberty and everything's changing and you know people are talking about the 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 guy that they might fancy Mm. and you know we used to take photographs if we were out and about and people would bring these you know publish photographs in and I'd always look at myself think gosh I look so different to everyone else like in terms of what's deemed conventionally attractive so there were there were yeah there were definitely two sides of what was going on this kind of flamboyant girl on the stage who's trying to play a different character and the real person who's actually yeah definitely feeling that sense of not fitting in Mm, absolutely but I was going to say from the outside looking in from all accounts from what I've listened to from what I've read you excelled at school you as you say you were a member of a successful drama group you you passed was it GCSEs with with flying colours so on one sense it must have been thought of that you were coping really really well but at that stage did you did you start to understand what satisfied you in terms of what you enjoyed on a day-to-day basis and was that a creative angle yeah definitely I think you know I I hadn't pinpointed it at that point but what I definitely felt comfortable with and enjoyed doing was finding out more about people about cultures and every weekend I would go back to my granddad's who lived in Manchester city centre and we'd sit there. He was from Ghana and he'd tell me more about my culture, my heritage, a part of me that I hadn't identified with really at all because I'd never been to West Africa. And just understanding a bit more about another culture allowed me to understand more about myself, but also gave me that interest in wanting to learn more about other people their backgrounds, where they're from, why they think the way they, that they think. 
So I always found it really fascinating. My mum as well, she studied to become a life coach. And I think it all kind of connects back to my granddad. When he um, lived in Africa, he was chief of a a small tribe uh, in Ghana, in Accra. And and the role of that that chief is is to bring people together, to communicate, to to have that sense of, of community and understand your identity and culture. And it feels like that thread has kind of gone from my granddad through to my mum in, in what she does and through to me. That's so interesting, that impact, because obviously you enjoyed that process mm. and you you took something from it. And actually you, by the sounds of it, took a very uh, sensitive period of your life, which could have gone another way completely and he turned it into into a positive I, it might be being a subconscious thing at school perhaps I but so, it maybe you know. planted the seed yeah, by the sounds of it that's it I think so I think especially when you're at school sometimes you're trying to figure things out I don't think I ever got to a point where I thought I've figured it out this is you know this is why I'm on this path and this is why I'm doing what I do it was more a sense of feeling I enjoy speaking to these people I enjoy asking these questions because it it's it's relighting that sense of intrigue and curiosity and that feels good and I think as you get older or you you have conversations like this and you have the opportunity to have a sense of reflection you start to connect the dots a bit more don't you You think oh that's why that's why I did that or oh those the all those times when I was sat with my granddad and we're looking through all photographs and he was speaking to me in his you know native language oh that's why it's it's those moments that you suddenly start to piece it all together a bit more and you were obviously respected because um am I right in thinking that you so you went to a place called Alderley Edge School for Girls sounds quite posh (laughs) yes was it it was it was yeah I, I mean you had an interview to get in that, yeah, that in itself yes. speaks volumes. But you excelled. You became head deputy head girl. I did. Which yeah. is, uh, for those who don't know, in England um, in particular, it's uh, it's quite a an achievement, I would say. To you know, you have to be someone who people look up to, who has a good yeah. uh, sense of how to communicate to people. Maybe a bit geeky, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, I definitely was. I mean, to be honest, I was. I think I was as surprised as the teachers because to become deputy head it was a vote from the pupils and I remember like we'd all had to go in and like have a chat with the the teachers as to who we thought should be head girl and then I remember going in to have a chat with a teacher and the first thing she said to me was apart from you Michelle because that's who everyone wants to vote for uh, who do you think should be deputy head and I was like what like I, I thought I thought she was trying to have some form of banter or like with me I was like what I, I just didn't really understand what she was saying and then when it was announced I was like oh she was actually being truthful when she said that that's mad so that was a surprise to you that, it was um, a massive surprise to well, me can yeah. I say popular I, I was this the 90s yeah I don't I, I definitely didn't see I had friends I wasn't in the popular... I was kind of a bit of a floater. I kind of liked to... I never really stuck to one group of people. I kind of might be in a group and then I thought, oh, I'm not too sure about this. And then I'd move and chat to somebody else and move to chat to somebody else. So I never really stuck with one... I don't know, one little I mean, sector it, in school. What you're describing to me is is kind of like a politician. <laughs> God, I'm, sure I'm sure you weren't. I'm sure you weren't. But I, I mean that as a compliment in the sense that I think the uh, you know the classic school experience is you stick in your cliques because you're super comfortable. Mm. And um, I mean, I, I'm no psychologist, so apologies to any proper qualified people listening. But if if you're in your clique, you feel that um, you're secure, and anything outside of that, you're insecure. But you seem to be comfortable 
in various different groups and cliques. And I do think that's interesting because actually when I think about it, I never, I never really felt secure in a clique. And I think even as an adult, I never really feel... I think sometimes... I, you know, you strive or I strive to be in this group like an episode of Friends and we're all best mates together and, you know, s- certain times you might get that on productions where you, you're in this group and you're all in it together and that's a lovely feeling. But that's also quite fleeting because in the freelance industry you move on to something else. And I think, yeah, when I was at school I'd I'd be in a group for a little bit of time but I'd never feel that secure because friendship dynamics would change and then it's like, oh... Um, um, do people still think I'm cool or not cool or what what does this even mean so it I almost felt more secure not being in that sense of a a unit or a group and just moving around a bit getting to know everybody but linking it back to what you currently do I think that's a a really good skill to have actually um, because I assume you know we'll get to this later in your you know your current career you do have to speak to so many different types of people in different scenarios and you do have to change your tone, uh, you know, at an instant, you know, if, if, if a conversation leads you down, say on the one show. I mean, mm. that's notorious for being so varied. It's insane. Like, it's you just could, you the could, gear changes it, on that. I, I just, mean, it's mad. Yeah, crazy. So uh, in a sense, and again, I'm connecting dots that may or may not need connecting, but you, you cut your teeth, I guess, at a school in doing that, in talking mimicking learning the skills to survive in different social groups yeah and and like I said you know it it feels like upon reflection and actually thinking about it now yeah that makes absolute sense at the time it just felt like the right thing to do that's what made me feel more secure getting to know different people and I, I, I never felt that secure just being in one specific group and I think maybe that's also because I didn't necessarily identify with one specific group there was never even within a collective group that one person or few people that I felt really got me as a person and maybe if you were to ask people you know other pupils from that school now that they're grown up they might feel the same I don't know but I I I feel like the, the closest I probably got to that was actually spending time with a lot more people and and understanding more people you know if that if that makes sense yeah absolutely it absolutely does and everyone's time at school is is different and varied but everyone goes through the a similar uh, affirmation of what life is about and in some cases they get disillusioned but you seem to have, have thrived and excelled. Did you go to A-levels first before you I went did. to uni? Yeah, yeah, so I did A-levels at the same school, so I did my GCSEs, A-levels, and one of my A-level subjects was psychology, and I absolutely loved it. I had a fantastic teacher, and it just kind of connected quite a few dots for me in terms of that really understanding human behaviour. And then I thought this is something that I'd like to take to university. So, yeah, I went to Manchester University and, and studied psychology. That's really interesting to me. So, you know, a lot of people who work in TV and radio, they go into it because they, they're they exposed to TV and radio all the time. Of course, we all are. And they look at it or they listen to it and they think, I want to be in that position. Whereas it sounds like you are more interested in the the, can I say, human approach in terms of really digging into relationships into what makes people tick before actually looking into the medium of tv itself absolutely yeah it's it's totally fair to say i mean at that time especially when i was at manchester uni i wasn't thinking of 
moving into the media, I mean, I certainly wasn't thinking of becoming a presenter. That came years later. At that time, I was going to Manchester Uni to become a psychologist. And uh, was any family members um, working in media at the time or did you have any connection to it at all? No, nothing, nothing at all. Like, you know, I was um, in our immediate family. I was the first one to go to university. So it was, you know, it was a big thing for, for my mum and dad. And, you know, they were loving the fact, especially my mum, that I was going to Manchester because I'd be round the corner. So, yeah, it was a, a really special thing. And, and for them, they were just happy that they, they didn't put any pressure on me in terms of continuing my education. But they were really happy that I was going to a university and studying a subject that I really enjoyed. But, yeah, at that, at that point, it was really just, again, just seeing what might unfold, you know, knowing that I'd found something that I found so interesting and how that was going to unpack itself at that particular point. I didn't really know until probably my second year in university when a couple of my tutors did a lot within the media industry. And that was like a light bulb moment for me. I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's interesting. It, so they, what, they worked on TV? So yeah, a bit. It was a bit of both. So one of my um, psychology tutors, like back in the days when Big Brother was still more of a social experiment rather than you'd go on yeah. to, 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 you know, be famous. He used to go on to various different talk shows and daytime programmes and kind of reflect on the characters that had gone into, say, the Big Brother house and talk about their body language and human behaviour. And I always found that so fascinating that you could essentially, you know, see something on television and then start to unpack it on a psychological level. Well, what year are we talking? Um, early 2000s? Early 2000s, so it would have been around 2002. Yeah, uh, so that I think that around that period, if my memory serves me right, psychology as a general broad brushstroke was quite popular because, as you say, Big Brother was seen as a psychological experiment. You had people like Darren Brown um, doing psychological tricks yes. instead of your usual, you know, rabbit out of the hat stuff. Yeah. And this idea that you could not manipulate, but you can... You can read nonverbal communication uh, to a certain level, which had never really been discussed in public before. And I, I guess you were at university studying psychology. At that time, it was in the public consciousness. That's it. Yeah, people were, there was an appetite for it. People mm. wanted to have that kind of discussion. And for me, it was interesting um, on one level because you could start to understand different personality traits and what makes people tick rather than it be about, labeling or you know definitely not manipulating but having the opportunity to understand why one person might behave a certain way is it nature versus nurture again questioning what's going on within their environment how have they been brought up what's their current situation that makes them behave in the way that we in, in the way that they do that was something that I just found fascinating yeah I think I think what strikes me is is the word empathy and understanding where people come from as opposed to manipulation. You know, this, if you're having a conversation, understanding that it's not necessarily, it's not good or evil. It's mm -hmm. just why are they saying what they're saying? Mm -hmm. And it, there's a whole backlog of things yeah. that could be contributing to, to them saying what they're saying or doing That's what it. they're doing. And it's, and it's so interesting. And, and you know, f for me, I think... I started that on a personal level because even when I was at university, I was still doing that with myself. And then suddenly you're have, you, you've got a, gr a degree with a framework, you know, around it. So it's not just your feelings that you're trying to work out and your personality traits and how they fit into this big, wide world. 
there's a subject out there that really kind of delves into and there's countless studies and you could write countless dissertations and countless more because that's the one thing with psychology everybody's got a theory and at the end of it you say well actually it could be this but also it could be that if you build an argument it's just as valid yeah exactly so outside of psychology then for a second what what were you like as a student were you in digs um did you have fun did you make good great friends what was what was it like it wasn't if i'm completely honest it wasn't that great because my family my parents were going through a really hard time so my dad had gone bankrupt essentially my my parents were nearly homeless so i was working two jobs trying to contribute to you know keeping my my mum and dad afloat my brother is you know he's very clever he managed to get a full scholarship to go to school so we knew that his fees were going to be taken care of or and and also for him he, he just kind of wanted to have an opportunity to to separate himself from it and you know so I actually can't think of one friend that I've got from university because I, I, I didn't have time to make any I literally went there to study come home support my parents um I I stayed in halls for probably like a couple of months Owens Park in in uh, Fallowfield in my first year trying to get into that university life everybody tells you you know university are the best years of your life blah 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 to be honest aside from actually studying the the subject they were probably some of my worst years of my life in terms of the the bigger situation of what was going on but again when I reflect on that it gave me that kind of real drive to think what is it I want to do here and how am I going to make this a success because I need to it's not it wasn't just a case of wanting to it's like I need to make this happen for myself and for my family. That's, it takes some drive and some inner motivation to, to, to get through that because, you know, university, as you say, it has these stereotypes of, of, of being almost the opposite to that, right? I, I think maybe if I were, if you know, if I'd chosen a university that was further away from home, maybe it would have been different. But I think my choice of university as well was kind of coupled in with I knew what was happening within my family environment. But also, even at that time, it wasn't lost on me that, hey, I was going to university. You know, some people don't get that opportunity. They don't get to go to the type of school that I did at the time and have a a certain type of education that allows you certain steps. So even though you know, I had a part of it and then it all went in terms of finances. I'd got to a certain point through the help of um, my dad. And then it's like, right, I've just got to crack on with this now. That wasn't lost on me that still, even with, you know, everything that was going on, I still felt I'd been awarded something from my family. Do you know what I mean? I was, I was fortunate in that sense. And one of the big driving things for me was that I wanted to make my dad proud and support them as much as I could when they've supported me in my childhood and also you know there were there were times that I I I loved the subject that I was doing I have to kind of separate it in my head in terms of what else was going on but I did really enjoy the the subject and it well it's like it's uh literally and I suppose metaphorically like a a very definitive moment in your life slash career because you, you know you you on the one hand you're it sounds like you're, you know, you're doing this, uh, working two jobs to support your family, but also you're doing a degree literally to to set you up for your next stage in life, mm. uh, and to compartmentalise those two things. 
do you, do you still see that drive? Do you still have that ability to compartmentalize those like different things in your life and manage things in, in slightly different ways? Because as a freelance, I suppose you, you need that skill because yeah. you're not working for one organization no. with managers and things. You're doing it completely, yeah. 100%. You know, it's really interesting. I, I definitely do. But I'm also a lot more honest with myself because I think at that time, I was literally just trying you know, to focus, focus, focus and, and do whatever I could. And, and almost like my actual emotions, if someone was to ask me how I was feeling, I would be numb. Like I couldn't cry. I was just like, I was on antidepressants. It was just like this blinkered approach to achieving a degree and formulating the next steps of my career. And it's amazing what you can do when you do have that mindset. I, I could feel that sense in my stomach, like I, I've got to do it. Whereas now... I still have the ability to compartmentalise, but I have much more raw and honest feelings. A bit, I'm more honest with myself because I'm not going through that situation anymore. And I do go through times now where I feel exhausted. I feel exhausted by the media industry. I feel exhausted being a freelancer. I feel exhausted constantly at, you know, 38 years old, being in the industry nearly 20 years, still trying to prove myself or my worth to different producers, commissioners and yeah, and that's just that's just how the industry is. And you you watch TV or you see someone else's social media post, you think they they just like sailing through. How they managed to do that? And some people say it to me. Oh, I see you on telly all the time. You're doing so well. Meanwhile, you're at home thinking, right, what's my next idea going to be? Who do I email today? What you know? What conversations can I have? So it's and situations change, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, anyone listening to this, not in media the competition is rife especially in tv I, I i've never worked in tv but the stories i've heard in television it's so competitive and as you say especially if you're a freelancer you have to constantly do the work perhaps to to make yourself i don't want to use the word but i feel that it might be the best one to use relevant mm. it's i suppose it's interesting to hear from you that 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 never goes away there's no such thing as a cushy tv job perhaps. i think there are, i think cushy tv jobs are very few and far between there are some of there are some of them you know where you'll have regular presenters doing regular shows but there aren't many of them because that's not how we consume telly you know if if our tv schedule was like program after program that was a continuous like daytime show like a one show throughout the day I'm sure every presenter would think, oh, this is fantastic because I'm on it every single day. You know, I don't need to think about the the rest of my career because this is sorted, but those shows exist because it's a destination point in our schedule. And then we watch other things. So just by how telly is scheduled, there's not, there's not those many cush or what you would deem to be a cushy TV job. And it depends what you're after as well. I think for me, it's, it's changed over the years, you know, mm. um, how? Well, I think I've I've done so many different things now, you know, and um, I'm proud of that because I remember when I first started out, I remember being told by one big boss that essentially get in your lane, you need to choose. And that there is some validity to that in terms of think about what your USP is, as, as going back to what you said, what makes you relevant, but also, or can you be an expert in something? And that was the that was the thing that I started to slightly disagree with. Can you be an expert in one thing? You can be an expert in something, but also have other interests. Because I just think, again, I think it probably goes back to psychology and, you know, being a child. We're not linear human beings. 
we've got actually a lot to say about a lot of different things about the world and I might be able to go and present Crime Watch and, and you know, cover some really harrowing cases and, and speak to victims of domestic abuse or abseil down the Brecon Beacons with the Mountain Rescue Team and talk about what they're doing within their campaigns. And then I can go and interview World's Strongest Men and talk about, you know, what they're doing with... Because the essence of all of that is there's a connector between people. What are their interests? What are their passions? And to have the ability... Well, maybe it is an ability, I don't know. But for me, it's a real interest in people. Mm. So... Yeah, I was about to say that. I think that is absolutely valid because what you were explaining before almost sounded like a movie star getting pigeonholed for doing an action film mm. or being a baddie, right? Yeah. And in in TV, it's kind of if you're a presenter, it's kind of insane to put them as anybody as you know a certain type of mm. genre or a certain. And I do think the industry has changed over the years. I think if I was to have that same conversation now, it would be a very different one. And I think probably social media has a part to play in that. In terms of everybody's got their own individual platform, and they can say whatever they want to say on that day. And it kind of shows that we do have various different facets to our personalities and our day-to-day lives, which can be a good thing within the industry. But yeah, it. it it has changed going back to you asking what's changed in terms of what I want to do for me because I've done so many different things live shows pre-recorded shows foreign shoots current affairs you know sports I'd like to have a bit more consistency in some areas I think if I'm completely honest it does get tiring constantly pitching yourself I think it would be nice to have a bit more of a routine Welcome back. This is Something in Media. I'm Dave Maguire and we're listening to the story of how Michelle Ackley became one of the UK's best loved TV presenters. So it's early 2000s and it's obvious that Michelle's drive and determination at university in her native Manchester is a reflection on her ambition to succeed in the world of television. And that self-belief was also carried with her into the real world. You got to, am I right in thinking towards the end of your third year, you got, um, you saw an advertisement, a placement, a free work experience placement for the BBC, which was literally down down the same road as you were living in, wasn't it? it was, exactly. It was on Oxford Street or it Oxford Road? Yeah, so my psychology building was um, like at the top of Oxford Street and BBC Manchester at the time was a bit further down Oxford Road. And I'd um, prior to that, I'd been to this kind of seminar where they had, I, I just found a poster on a wall in one of the uh, university buildings and it was and it was representatives from the media industry coming in to do a talk so there was is it Gordon Burns from Northwest Tonight a representative from Key 103 various different people and they were all talking about what it was like working within the media and it just sounded like this amazing creative space they all came in they weren't wearing suits you know they were just I thought wow you can actually be yourself in a space and they were happy they were chatting I thought right I'm going to do some more research here and find out what else might kind of fit the bill with what I'm interested in and I found it was called Channel M at the time it was a local TV station in Manchester and I thought maybe I'll reach out to them and see if I can do some shadowing because I thought I don't want to apply for a work experience placement at the BBC or ITV or wherever if I've got nothing that I can put on it like I want to show that I've gone out of my way to try and find some other experience before I write that I'm you know want to work with you smart 
so I went to Channel M and I did quite a bit of work experience with them like you know, shadow the floor manager and helped write the scripts for the presenter. And, and, and Chan- Channel M was what was the setup like? We, I, 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 you know, I don't mean to be patronising, but was it basic? <laughs> it was like it was in an old uh, Salford University building. I mean, I don't think Channel M's going anymore. It was an old um, university building in the basement. The studio was. It was essentially a chair and a table. Do you know what I mean? And then just yeah, a load of students. Um, who was studying media kind of trying to get this program on air but for me I was like oh my god this is amazing and I was so grateful I still remember the guy's name Ed the producer who responded to my emails I was so grateful that he actually replied to me because this was this back in the day when you know everything is online now you can you can you can go on LinkedIn you can go on Facebook whatever and uh, every everyone's details there this was early 2000s. Yeah, it wasn't easy to find contacts. I mean, I'd... Yellow yeah. pages. <laughs> I'm not that old. But yeah, you, it wasn't, you know, it's not like you could just go onto someone's Instagram and, you know, or DM them or whatever. It was like, okay, find this website, find this link. A lot of the times there wouldn't be a direct email for someone. So it would be calling. I'd actually call a lot of... Um, I'd find like a, a company number, then call them and then try and find a name for someone and then speak to someone and then they'd give me that email address and then I'd follow it up with an email. And I did that a good few times with um, various different independent like production companies. And eventually this guy called Ed replied to me and I thought, hallelujah, right, I'm holding on to this for as much as I possibly can. And um, yeah, I was able to get various, you know, bits of shadowing work from him, which I just thought this is, it just gives me something. If I'm lucky enough to have an interview at the BBC or wherever, it gives me something to talk about. It shows that, because one thing that I remember hearing from the seminar is if you are going to apply for a placement, don't just rely on the fact that you've done a media degree or you've, you know, because people might just go in and say, well, what, what have you done? oh, I've done a media degree, but yeah, what else have you done? What have you done outside of your actual degree, which, you know, you just have to turn up to your lectures to do? What are you doing outside of that? I think that still holds up today. Yeah. And, you know, we talked to Chris Skull, who he's a TV producer, but he also does his own podcasts and uh, he does his technology company. And he was talking about this and he was saying there's even, you never lived in a uh, better time to do this with social media oh my gosh it is if you can create your own content there's no excuse not to do anything because if you have a smartphone you can do yeah you can do stuff yeah I, I totally agree and I'm I'm surprised because the amount of messages I still get from people um that will say I get some lovely messages of people asking for advice um on how to get into the media industry and I always you know respond and I commend them for reaching out and finding people that they want to talk to to get advice And there's a difference between asking for advice and essentially asking for a job. And and I get messages like that a lot, basically saying, hi, Michelle, um, is there any chance you could get me a presenting gig on Morning Live or, you know, one show or or this, that and the other? You just think it doesn't work like that. Do you know what I mean? That there has to be an element of you making an effort. And this one student approached me and he wanted to do an interview with me for his podcast and he wanted some advice of getting into the industry and he it still sticks out in my mind now as like an amazing example of someone that's really put the effort in because we did an interview and he'd done his research and asked some really interesting informed questions when it came to advice because you know he'd already thought about um, where he wanted to position himself Mm -hmm. like people will say to me I I want to get into um, television 
please, can you help me? And I'll say, well, what kind of television would you like to get into? Anything. I'm like, television is a big industry. You know, there's there's so many different areas to TV. It's not enough to say, I want to be in telly. That doesn't actually mean anything. So you, you do commend people when they've actually had a, a real think about absolutely. what it is. And actually, you're absolutely right. In television, the different roles within it require almost... Completely, completely separate sk- skills. Skill set. Do you, do you think it's a case that work experience is more valuable? I think work experience is invaluable. And, you know, I, I, I did apply for a work experience placement in the end for the BBC. I just went on the BBC Jobs website, clicked on work experience placements, wrote my application and thought, well, it said like, oh, we normally take three to four months to respond. So I did it and didn't think anything of it. And then a few weeks later, they actually got in touch so I was like, whoa, went for the interview, obviously was bringing, trying to bring in all these different things, talking about my psychology degree, talking about my hobbies, talking about the things that I'd done within work experience prior, trying to bring a melting pot of different things and got the position. So it's a four week work experience placement unpaid. Like, Am I right in thinking as well? This is knowing how busy you were at university. This is right at the end of your third year. So you were doing, you're still doing jobs. I was, you, yeah. you were studying for the finals, I assume. Yes. And you were doing a BBC workplace. Yeah. That sounds bonkers. Well, I didn't actually think, because it said on the website, we won't get back to you. Probably, you know, they don't tend to get back for three to four months. I thought if I, if, if they do get back in touch with me, it will be when I finished my degree. So I'll do, you know, I'll back time it and I'll do it now. Which is, and a, then... is, a, good, is a good skill to have if you're a producer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it did work out like that because they got in touch with me sooner. So I thought, right. I remember speaking to my dad and being like, dad, what do I do? He's like, you just got to make it. You just got to make it work. I'm like, yeah, we're trying to make a lot of freaking things work here down at the minute. But I was like, okay, okay. So yeah, I got the, I got the placement and... So I'd get up really early in the morning and I'd either be going to do a job before work or I'd be studying for my dissertation. Then I'd get the train into Manchester, go to my lectures in my lunch break. Oh no, that's before I started the placement. Once I started the placement, I'd, I'd get up in the morning, go to the BBC, do, you know, do the day. In my lunch break, I would run up to the psychology building, print off all my notes for the lectures. So I had them in, in my folder, get back to my work experience and then... Once I finished for the day at the BBC, I would go home and work till stupid o'clock on my dissertation. Upon reflection, it was crazy. But also at the same time, I was really loving my work experience placement. I was thinking, this is a great opportunity. What kind of what kind of things were you doing then? The first thing I ever did, I worked on, um, it was a documentary called, um, like an obstock called The Secret Life of the Shop by a documentary maker course Richard Mesa so he did like the first ever ones of um, Katie Price and, and Jordan and he's done loads of different things and I found it fascinating because we travel we travel to this shop in Middlesbrough called Psych um, and it was actually about it was about the the characters in the shop so he'd follow them around and just and start to make character profiles and as as he was going along with the filming, then he would try and really think about what the narrative was going to be. And then my job, once we we're off location, was to scroll through all the tapes and write time codes and try and pick out the stories. So I found it really interesting. At the same time, it was quite a lonely job because there was only me, Richard and a researcher, Julia, on the team. So there was only the three of us. And I remember thinking at the time, I've got four weeks here. A week just went mm-hmm. like that 
two days of travelling, come back doing some tapes, didn't see anybody. And I kept, well, I saw people like walking along the corridor and they had these like, you know, BBC passes. And I thought, oh, there's stuff, there's stuff. I've got this little paper thing. I want one of them. And I thought, right, I've got three weeks to go. This essentially for me, it's like a three week interview. I can't just sit here. I've got to try and speak to other people because even the person that was there before me on the last day, I remember on the very last day of work experience before I started, she was running around the floor giving everyone a CVs. No one had even spoke to her before that because right. of the nature of the work experience she was doing. And she was like, oh, I've not spoken to anyone else. I thought, I, I, can't, I can't make that mistake. So in my, as well as trying to do my psychology degree, I try and have conversations with other teams. I organised a meeting with the exec producer, one of the main exec producers of entertainment, who still remains a really good friend now, uh, to ask her what mentorship, what other mentorship schemes they do in the BBC. Do they have any diversity schemes? Do they have any schemes that you know can help new people coming in with ideas? And um, if there isn't, I'd like to be involved in in you know something like that. I was just trying to create conversations with people that would create an element of me sticking. I wanted to feel sticky like they couldn't just get rid of me after the three I weeks. I think that's really good advice because I, I it's an obvious thing to say, but organisations are just made up of people mm. and people make decisions. And if you can be, as you say, sticky, then you have a much, much better chance of, of sticking around. Literally. Yeah. I guess in a lot of ways, I am inherently shy, but I know that about myself and I know I have to make an effort to talk to people. And in the media, it can be difficult if you're not necessarily an extrovert to go and start to have those conversations. It it can feel quite hard, but it is important to to reach out and connect with people. And, you know, I'd I'd send emails to like the, the big boss of entertainment or whatever and say you know I've just started I'm a work experience I'd love to meet you for a cup of coffee because what are they going to do they can't sack me I'm sending them a very nice email maybe it'd be good for them to speak to a new work experience and find out what it's actually like for the person that's just started on the ground I, I think a lot of people listening will actually would struggle with doing that you know mm. but it sounds like it came quite naturally not naturally to you to, to do it, but you, you thought about it and you weighed it up. And as you quite rightly, what's the worst that can happen? So going back to you and your story, you are obviously very good at what you did. You at the BBC, let's say mid noughties to 2010, 2015. Tell me about that journey, because reading up from researching what you've done in the past, you've done a lot of different things. And, yeah. Uh, you did all right in your degree so I don't know I did yes yeah. so I got a two one in in uh, my psychology degree which I was very happy with and then kind of embarked on this journey within BBC Manchester so I did my four-week work experience placement made various connections and contacts and and got extended for another month which I was paid for so that was my kind of first you know paid job within the industry which was that must have been amazing to get oh, paid I was for it buzzing did you have to go through a board or did you did you interview? i did yeah so i, I yeah the, the famous boards <laughs> um it was for uh, mastermind so i was a runner on mastermind so i i boarded for that and i guess in a way it was kind of good because i'd i'd been studying so much for my degree it was kind of i was on autopilot of like right okay you know this kind of situation where you've just got to study 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 well that's my, that was my approach to it and yeah, so I spent really between 2005 to 2010 working in production. So I started as a runner on Mastermind, worked on Mastermind, Question of Sport, Dragon's Den. Ended up, I, I knew I kind of wanted to work within BBC Children's once I'd done the rounds within really? entertainment. Yeah, I thought 
this I just it, again it seemed like a very creative industry were you part of a production pool and you know one project finished and then you automatically got assigned to another project no or? no you'd have to interview at that, at that because I wasn't okay. staff I'd have right. to interview I'd have you know uh, one month or two months right. or if you got a three month contract then that was amazing so it was always kind of like right what's the plan off the back of this sometimes you'd get extended on one particular you know program if the wash up or the clean up as it, it was called if there was a lot of paperwork to do after studio or, mm-hmm. or whatnot was this mainly based in manchester this as well? was all yeah this was manchester mm-hmm. And I was thinking at the time that, you know, it'd be really good uh, idea to have a mentor. And I didn't know whether they did things like that in the BBC. But I thought I want to I want to try and connect with different people in other departments as well and and see if I can get some form of mentor. And so I asked the exec who I had had various conversations by that point in entertainment. Is there any form of mentorship scheme that I can go on in brackets? Because it'll keep me in the building. (laughs) (laughs) And she put me in touch with a chap in London because at the time BBC Children's, which was where I was thinking I wanted to work, was in London. And I went on this kind of mentorship scheme, which was essentially going down and shadowing people within CBBC, finding out a bit more about the work that they do. And then a research position on Blue Peter came up which I applied for and boarded for and I got the job. So I went down to work on Blue Peter, which I absolutely loved. I mean, some of my closest friends now are are from that from that time. Brilliant. So this is this is West London. This is West London Television Centre. Yeah. Um we were in East Tower. Um used to have lunch in the Blue Peter Garden. It was Which is a lot smaller because I've seen it. Yeah. Um, I got quite drunk at once at the BBC bar and we went, all went down there. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot it's, smaller than it's, you It's realize. tiny, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It, it just felt like such an exciting time. I was on the studio team and you were given so much autonomy. I felt like I really was able to cut my teeth in terms of the production mm-hmm. industry of, of telly there because there were so many hard deadlines. It was a live show, two live shows a week, Thursday and a Friday, I think it was, or Wednesday and a Thursday. And my job on the studio team was to pitch all the studio items for the presenters um, sometimes for the film team as well. So you'd constantly be thinking about, okay, well, what would kids like to see? What would they find fun? What's in the news at the minute? How can we bring this topicality to something? Mm. What what new things can we do? What can we make? And so I'd be doing everything from making dog beds out of old jumpers mm. to try and get kids involved in this kind of new, you know, popular fashion, ethical fashion, whatever it may be. But I I loved it and it you know, like I said, I, I ended up making some really good friends and I felt this new level of confidence coming out. And, and new city. New city as li- well. Living in uh, rented accommodation. I was flat sharing with um, Helen, who was presenting um, Skeleton. Blue Peter at the time. Yeah, we're still good friends. And Barney the dog. Um, <laughs> Hang on. The Barney the dog from the show. Yeah. Lived with you. Yeah, it was her dog. And we lived together, yes. So sometimes I would babysit Barney (laughs) um, when she'd be doing her amazing challenges. Um, So yeah, no, it was was an amazing time. And when I would pitch those ideas, so the editor essentially was kind of like a big kid. So you'd you'd have to go in when you're pitching these ideas, you've got to go in with like real passion, essentially present it. And that's kind of where the presenting element started to to come in. So interesting, you're right. With presenting... So you were flat sharing with Helen Skelton, who was a presenter. Did it cross your mind that you wanted to be a presenter? That this was a this was a an option for you? It was 
I, it was such an organic process, to be honest. I, I mean, I remember watching Helen and Andy, who, who's another really good friend, one of the other presenters in the studio, and thinking, these guys are incredible. And also because they were my age group and they were so dynamic, I was kind of in awe of them and just, you know, that the whole experience was so exciting. Did I think that I could do what they could do at that time? Possibly not. Uh, you know, I was still I was still new, mm-hmm. but then I, I think through the, the whole pitching sense of things, maybe slowly but surely, I kind of gained in confidence and thought, "Oh, this is," you know. And then a couple of people would mention it to me. Oh, have you ever thought of doing this? And actually, at the time when people asked me, I would say no because I I didn't want to be seen as someone that's only come onto Blue Peter because I want to be a presenter. That was kind of like frowned upon as well. Like, you know, oh, she's one of them or he's one of them. They say they want to work in production, but actually they're only here because they want to present, which again, shouldn't, if that's what you want to do, you know, there should be opportunity to to do that. And I've had lots of conversations with colleagues and friends who have had a similar route to me. And we've all said, oh, did you feel at the time that you couldn't say this or you couldn't say that? Absolutely. Yeah, that exists in radio. Does it really? It's, It's an interesting one, isn't it? But yeah, there was one day and it was the um, the dog bed out of old Christmas jumpers that I, I had pitched. And I can't remember what challenge Helen was doing, but it might have been rowing the Amazon or something equally as, as impressive. And the editor had said, Michelle, you know this item because you, you pitched it. Do you want to come on and do it on Blue Peter? And I was like, OK. And I remember calling my dad and being like, what I got, what I what am I going to do? Just do it. Just get on with it and do it. I was like, okay. Um, so that kind of, once I'd done that, it kind of gave me that little, mm. oh. Did you enjoy it? I really enjoyed it. I was nervous. Mm-hmm. And I remember stumbling my lines a little bit. and But I really enjoyed it. It didn't make me necessarily think, I want to be a presenter. It made me think, there could be an avenue here where I pitch different ideas like I've just done and could have some kind of, involvement in presenting them so it made me start I started to reach out to previous producers that I'd worked with in current affairs in Manchester for for separate ideas and then one of my friends at the time she was a producer and there was a new art show coming up in CBBC that they were looking for new presenters for and I think I was off on leave I was on sick leave and she messaged me saying, oh, Michelle, just to let you know, I've booked you in for an audition for an art show and CBBC. It's next Wednesday at 11 o'clock. I was like, what? <laughs> um, so I went for that and I got the, oh, amazing. I got the gig. What was the, what was the show? It was called Deadly Art. So it was like a spin-off show of Deadly 60 oh, with, with Steve um, Backshaw. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So the Deadly Art show was basically, it was kind of like Art Attack, making things inspired by what he'd seen in the wild now just to caveat this I can't draw so <laughs> I remember thinking what how am I going to do this like I can I'm creative like I can yeah. make things so as part of the audition I had to make something so I made um I made a money box out of an old milk carton and made it look like an elephant. This was making something and presenting at the same yeah. time. Like you'd see on cooking shows. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, you know, like a milk cart, you've got the handle. Yeah. You cut it off at the middle. So the handle looks like a trunk. And then the top bit, you can unscrew and put your money in it. Excellent. And then make it look. I thought, okay, I'm not a good drawer, but I can, you know, I want to show that I can be creative and have yeah. ideas. So, yeah, ended up getting the, the job on that. But it was definitely one of those things, you know, when you feel like um, I've done something and I'm really enjoying it, but I do feel like a bit of a fraud because 
I was with three other people who got cast and they were amazing artists. And again, it, it kind of reminded me of being at university because the day before the producers would say, right, tomorrow we're going to draw a bear. And I'm like, I can't just draw. If someone told me to draw a bear, I can't just draw a bear. So I would be up all night, like... Really? <laughs> looking at pictures of bears or finding different things I got from the internet and then, like, tracing, 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 and then trying to do it without having something on top of it so it felt like it was muscle memory. So yeah. when it got to the studio the next morning, I could draw a bear. I enjoy presenting in CBBC and it's, it's really fun. But if I'm looking to go down the presenting route as a whole... It needs to be authentic to me. Mm -hmm. It needs to be, mm -hmm. it's, it's great pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And I definitely did that with that show, yeah. but I want to be also telling stories or, or talking about things or interviewing people where I feel like I can really mm -hmm. give something of, of myself and it feels natural. But in a way, that's, um, that's kind of a nice way to start because you had the experience of presenting in an area that wasn't your comfort zone. So it could only get more comfortable, perhaps. Yeah, and, and you know, what you, I mean, I look at CBBC presenters or kids' TV presenters as a whole. They are amazing. Like, you know, the likes of, of Helen, there's so many good kids' TV presenters that, that have come up and are still, you know, continuing to do really well today. And it, and it is, if you look at, like, the likes of, of Helen and Andy on, on Blue Peter, that show wasn't with Autocue. You know, they'd have a script meeting and... It was a full live show and they've got to deliver these pieces to camera and they've got to have the enthusiasm and then things change last minute. And you've got animals in the studio, you've got kids in the studio, then you're live outside the yeah. studio. There's so much going on that actually if you can nail that within that kind of environment and then anything else, even when I used to do Cranwich Roadshow and be live and on OB, sometimes I'd be you know hanging off the side of a building doing a piece to camera like with... You know, a mountain rescue team member they show me how to abseil down yeah. safely you think oh well I'm glad I've had those experiences yeah. in in kids tv because this helps me with this or it helps me with that you know uh, absolutely and there's a there's a strong culture in this country of a lot of very prominent news adults that you wouldn't expect them to come from children's tv but they have Miles Jupp Oh yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Came from Andy Peters, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I was working uh, with him recently. Sarah Cox and like it's yeah, just Philip Schofield, Holly Willoughby. I mean, there's so there's so many. I do think it's interesting though how children and teenagers consume content. It's 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 changing so much. And even when I was there, you know, that kind of typical TV presenter within the the, the kids industry is, is completely different. When I was moving out of um, so I did a bit of presenting within uh, CBBC on, on the, the art shows and then um, carried on with my production. So I was assistant producer on Blue Peter when it moved up to, to Media City. And when I, when I left, so I left as a producer, an events producer within BBC Learning, the landscape of presenters was very, was changing very quickly in terms of the presenters for kids TV were getting younger. It was more about, less about having an adult that was telling them what to do, more about having a child their age going on that journey with them. And we're in that age of kind of social media developing where they were looking for more kind of influencers mm -hmm. um, that the the children might find cool and follow. Relatable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really interesting, again, how television and the industry evolves as a whole. And that's why, you know, as a freelancer, you are constantly thinking about how you can remain relevant or keep those contacts. And uh, like we said, unless you have that kind of Monday to Friday constant gig that that isn't just for two months that like you, you're 
you're signed up for you do have to keep on your toes and constantly thinking of of the next the next job there's no answer to it it's and it and it's uh, fascinating that people who are starting in the industry and people like yourself who've been in the industry for a number of years have the same issues right and then you have into the mix you have where you're going to base yourself where you're from the the monetary values and uh, how difficult sometimes that can be even to get to work experience yeah uh, that i think that's a really good point actually and i only had that conversation recently it's that tricky thing within an industry because as a freelancer you, you're always moving for the work but then you've got what your ideals would be my ideal would be that I was based up north again I'm from Manchester I love living in London but you know I love my hometown as well and you're always trying to second guess what might happen next and I'm in a situation at the moment where a program makes saying oh we'd love you to do more but you're just not based up north whereas you know a few years ago it's like we'd love you to do more but you're just not based down south so it's you're constantly trying to make somebody else happy. And even when you think that you're doing that, things change again. You, you know, I could base myself up north tomorrow and then yeah. switch the telly on and the, there's someone else doing yeah. that that thing that they said they'd really like me to do. I think I've, what I've started to do more is have those honest conversations. Like I want to be able to sit in front of someone and I don't want, uh, I'm trying to think how not to swear. I don't want, you know, a crappy telly answer. Just be be honest with me. Since mid two thousands and two thousand and ten, I'm just I'm just reading through a few of your credits: Panorama, Watchdog, Test House, Council House, Crackdown, Crime Watch, Roadshow, Fake Britain, Fraud Squad, um, Fantasy Homes by the Sea, World's Strongest Man, Wonderful World Crafting. It's amazing, right? You've <laughs> do, you you have someone's dream CV, a lot of people's dream CV. A, do you ever look back in your career, and if so? Do you give yourself a moment to credit yourself with what you've done or do you only look forward? I mean, what what is the dynamic there? That's a difficult one to answer. I need to spend more time. I don't want it to sound really kind of like egotistical, but I do think I, I need to spend more time actually recognising the things that I have done. I think that sometimes can easily be taken away from you if you just kind of are focused on what's next, what's next, what's next. And you'll always have some producer or commissioner or that won't necessarily know your CV. So you feel like you're starting from scratch. You know what, I was walking, I was walking through London the other day and I walked past so many places which I've filmed or had amazing meetings about a project that I'm doing or a spot where I've interviewed someone. And suddenly, what is a big city felt very small and quite amazing. And I was on my way to to do some five live radio and I thought, wow, you know, over the last 10 or so years, you've done a lot of stuff, Michelle. So I did give myself that kind of little pat on the back and it gave me a bit of pep in my step, you know, going into to my next job. I think it's easy for me to not do that as well and constantly thinking about the next thing. And I think as I get older, my approach to the industry is definitely changing. My confidence in myself in terms of what I will and won't put up with is changing, especially when it comes to diversity and representation and things that have been said to me in the past I definitely wouldn't put up with or I would answer back to now. And that's a good thing. But I have still got that that drive that I had when I was at university and when things weren't going that great. This, you know, this things that I want to do, this things that I will do and I will continue to strive. I'm not sure I'll ever be the person that will sit there and be like, I'm happy now, but I'm 
definitely working out ways to recognise and and see how important that recognition is to help you move forward. If you had a bit of advice for anybody listening to this, they might not feel worthy, they might feel that it's not there, they're not accepted, but they still want to do something within TV, radio, newspaper. Have you got any any advice? It's definitely having that resilience because I can guarantee you 100% that even the people that you're watching on TV that you think have got it all figured out and are super successful will have insecurities will be feeling not worthy and maybe lack a sense of belonging try and find role models people that you trust to reach out to when I started I'd watch programs on tv and now you've you've got you know social media and find ways of of reaching out to maybe not necessarily that person if it's hard to do so but production teams there's ways of reaching out to people within the industry. And there are a lot of people within this industry that want to help and want to support. So it's finding those finding those networks. What does the next 10 years, 15 years hold? What does Michelle Ackley want to do? In terms of telly, uh, this is what's in my manifestation book. I would like to have a regular programme that I do every day that's consistent, that involves being on a positive platform that, that gives me the awareness within the media industry to be able to go on and do other things that could potentially help people, gives them a voice. It also provides a work-life balance because you've got the regularity to it. And yeah, I just want my family and me to be healthy, to be happy, really, really excelling in my career, continuing to excel, but also being present and really happy within my environment. Michelle Ackerley and how she became something in media. You can find out what she's up to on Instagram at Michelle underscore Ackerley. That's A-C-K-E-R-L-E-Y. And keep an eye out for Michelle on The World's Strongest Man, plus a BBC documentary which is forthcoming called The Truth About Net Zero. How has Michelle carved out such an amazing career, I hear you ask? Well, get further insights from our in-house careers advisor, Soma Gosh, via our website. That's somethingin.media. You can glean a deeper understanding of what it takes to make it in the media, and you can even get the opportunity to book a one-on-one session. Something in Media is a stable production. And if you enjoyed listening, please follow us by pressing the subscribe button or follow button. And if you think someone may benefit by listening to these types of stories, please do let them know where to find us. I'm Dave Maguire, and thanks again for listening.